Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... So the timing of your birth is one of the things that might influence your likelihood of success. Is Can you keep as many people viable for as long as possible? What proof is there around the 10,000-hour mark? This idea that you must accumulate training is bad. I would do away with selection before 16. Welcome to the Science of Sports. Uh, my name is Mike Finch, and as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. And today we're talking about something which I think every parent around the world often thinks about when little Johnny or little Sally does very well on the sports field. They think, will my little Johnny and Sally become a professional athlete? And I think uh, it's a subject that uh, has many complex parts to it. Um, of course, uh, there's lots of discussion about how parents live vicariously through their children. Failed athletes often want to have their kids be more successful than they are. I know I was one of them. Um, my sons have been more successful at sport than I have been. But um, Ross, it is a very complex subject because there are so many factors involved in, in making a champion out of the millions of people that participate in sport. Yeah, it's easily it's easily my favorite subject in sports science because it's so <laughs> complex and because there are so many ways you can approach it. There is a heavy strategic angle you can take, you know, high level, big picture thinking. Uh, but then you can also, if you really want to, you can get right down in the weeds and you can look at data and you can measure performance of young kids as they mature mm. and you can ask all sorts of questions of the numbers. So it doesn't matter which direction you come at it from. It's just an absolutely fascinating topic and and I really, really enjoy it. And it also it also lends itself so easily to popular media translation. So yeah. when you walk into the bookstore, you will find half a dozen books on performance, not even necessarily on sport, but they'll all borrow from talent ID, sports development, high performance sports themes. And so that's why we have such juicy topics like mm. 10,000 hours, relative age effect, grit, growth mindset. They, these are psychological concepts that all impact on sports performance and mm. talent and development. So it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating, awesome topic to discuss. I think you've done a presentation on this on many occasions, which I've gone through ahead of the podcast. And uh, it, it is so complex that I, it's, it's very doubtful we'll get to the nitty gritty of some of the really complex sagas and that. But we are planning to do a second podcast along with David Epstein, who's a author of a book called The Range, which talks a little bit about genetics and about how the, the sport and not just sport, actually, life, why generalists are potentially doing better in a specialist world. Maybe we can just talk briefly about what that book's about, and then we'll be talking more specifically about that when it comes to talent identification. Yeah, so Range is David's second book. His first one was called The Sports Gene, and it is comfortably the best book that I've ever read on sports science in the in the popular sort of publicly available media. Um, so Sports Gene was David's attempt to address some of the uh, imbalances that certain other authors had created. So if you look, for instance, at Syed's Bounce, it, it was, a lot of it was just nonsensical and potentially damaging yeah. um, because of the advice it gave. 
it cherry-picked research, it took that advice out of context, and I think it probably did more harm than good. And David and I, so I've known David for over a decade now, and we often talk about this, and he's so sharp. He picks up these inconsistencies and poor thinking patterns so quickly, and he ended up writing a book. Not, it would be wrong to say his motivation was to correct the thinking because he just wanted to explore it in a proper, credible way. And so he produces Sports Gene, uh, and then having finished that, he extends his thinking and goes even deeper, and he produces a book called Range, in which he describes how elite performance is achieved through methods, learning techniques, generalization as opposed to specialization. So he is someone we will definitely get on this podcast because there's no one in the world who's better at talking about these things than he is. Yeah. So let's get down to some of the nitty-gritty. Um, the, the first question is when when you were born and where you were born. Let's start, let's start with when you were born. There's there's some theories about if anybody's read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's books, there's some discussion about how at when you were born in the year, in other words, first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, whether you will be more successful depending on when you're born. What does the what does the science say? And there are differences as in your presentation versus adolescents versus adults when it comes to this um, performance base. Yeah. So even to preface my answer to that, um, people make what I think is an error in this area of, of wanting to simplify it, which is good, but there comes a point where you oversimplify it to its detriment. Um, so you've said already that it's enormously complex. And the reason it's enormously complex is because there are a thousand ways to succeed. Mm. There are a thousand ways to fail also. In fact, probably 10,000 ways to fail. And what people have tried to do is they've tried to simplify down to a few key bullet points because that's the culture we live in. Do this, don't do that. And one of those concepts is this whole relative age effect. And I first read about it in, in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, yeah. where he tells this very compelling story of noticing well, a person who notices that all the players on an ice hockey team happen to be born in the first quarter of the year. He says, yeah. well, that's, that can't be coincidence. Yeah. So in other words, he's noticed that January, February, and March births are massively overrepresented on the ice. And there's hardly anyone from November, December. Yeah. So he says, well, is this just a coincidence? I doubt it. Let me explore it. And subsequently finds that there are similar patterns in many sports, Czech Republic football, Canadian ice hockey, uh, it even exists in South African rugby. Yeah. And so what you're dealing with there is the phenomenon where children who are born in the first quarter of the year, now at school, it depends where you are in the world listening to this, you were selected for an age group team based on your age, either on the 1st of January, sometimes it's on the 1st of September, it doesn't matter really. The point is your first quarter is the first three months after that age cutoff point. Yeah. So what, what happens then is that around 60 to 70% of your players will be born in the first three months. Now, why is that? That's because when we select at the age of 9, 10 years old, the coach is unable to tell apart maturity from ability. And so at the age of 10, the child who's born in January has a 9, 10, 11-month head start on a child who's born in December, yet they mm. compete in the same team. They compete for the same place in the under-11 soccer team. It doesn't seem like a lot of time, though. I mean, does it make that much difference? Well, when you're 10 or 11 years old, that's almost 10% of your life. Yeah. And you are developing physical attributes at such a rate that the person, all other things being equal, of course, the person who's born 10 or 11 months before his peers 
has greater strength, greater speed, yeah. tends to be taller, tends to have improved decision-making abilities. And so therefore, the coach says, that's the best player, and I'm going to pick the best players for my team. And the casualty of this is the kid who, through no fault of his own, just happened to be born 10 or 11 months later. And so he gets discarded, yeah. and you get this over-representation of relatively older children. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that uh, when my eldest son was born, he was born in December, and we actually decided to hold him back for a year instead of starting school in the year that he turned seven. Right. So in, in South Africa, that's what it was. And, and I think it was a good decision because when he got to school, he wasn't behind. And I think it was, I don't know whether we actually understood the science back then about why that was, but I think physically it actually did help him when it comes to his sport, which was cycling and running, because he didn't feel like he was always chasing. He was actually one of the stronger athletes and actually ended up becoming a very good rider as a result of that. So he almost gained confidence in his early years to become more confident and more successful as a sportsman later on in life. Yeah. And you did that Based on common sense. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. It just so. didn't seem right for him to go to school at such a young age for him. And when, and when he was six, obviously 10 months makes a big difference. Yeah, then yeah. it's even more pronounced. So you made a decision based on common sense without knowing the data. The problem is that it doesn't work in the other direction. So the person who then selects them, your, your kids under 10 soccer coach, mm. ice hockey coach, basketball, whatever it is, pick your sport, doesn't understand that he mm. is looking at differences in development as opposed to actual differences between person A and person B. And this this yeah. is true, by the yeah. way, even of cognitive tasks. So there's some evidence that the older kids perform better in academic tasks because yeah. they're just that little bit smarter, a little bit wiser, a little bit more mature. Like maybe they can pay attention 10% more. Mm. And so which, which pupil do you think the teacher gives more attention to and yeah. more time? Who do you think gets more positive affirmation? when they're nine, 10 years old. And those things make a difference. So the, the theory there is that when you are born sets you apart and gives you an effect a head start because you are more likely to be selected. And once you're selected into that under 11, 12 team, mm. now you get the best coaching, you get the best facilities, you get the best opportunities to play against other children. So your competitive development is accelerated. And so effectively, that first selection is a fork in the road and the haves mm. get everything and the have-nots get nothing. And those have-nots could be talented, but they that's, don't ever see the light of day. Right, and that's the yeah. problem. So this introduces us, when I talk about this concept to sports organizations and federations and so forth, I, I point out that there are three errors that are made in talent development and ID. And the one is the exclusion error. In other words, you, you wrongly exclude people. Mm. So... Mm. There is a person who was born on the 15th of December who would potentially have had all the capabilities of becoming one of the global superstars in a sport, yeah. but he wasn't picked because he happened to be the fifth smallest kid in his class and the coach didn't know the difference. So, so the timing of your birth is one of the things that might influence your likelihood of success. Yeah. Where it gets really interesting, and again, this is where these populist books have done this concept of disservice. Sorry, Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not the worst of them. He has changed a lot of thinking. He's not the worst of them, but he's, he's also not, you know, he's, he's not worse. He's, he just opened people's minds to certain concepts that... No, he's a clever guy. Yeah, Had I not read Outliers, I might not have thought way. of these yeah. things. So I, I think he's a cool guy, and he's probably overall been a force for good. I think there are other authors who haven't. But um, where was I? I was saying that... Uh, Sorry, I've digressed you again. 
Yes. Talking now to, my yeah. train of thought is stalled. Uh, <laughs> so talking talking about how athletes develop and then obviously they as they get older, they, yes. they, 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 other athletes so, kind of disappear even though they might be talented. Yeah, but then what's really interesting is that into adulthood this effect disappears. Yes. So when you start looking at senior teams, you no longer see first quarter over-representation. Okay. When you look at professional ice hockey players, so now senior we're talking, being defined as what over the age of twenty. Yeah, so yeah. A representative junior would be under sixteen, under eighteen, under yeah. twenty, and then yeah. you become an adult, you become a professional, and what's really interesting is that that effect is gone. So in ice <laughs> hockey, seventy odd percent of your under eighteens are born in January, February, March, mm-hmm. first quarter of the year. By the time you get to professional hockey in the NHL, the best players, the ones who get the most appearances, who score the most goals, the most assists, are the ones born in the third and the fourth quarter. So then you look at that and you say, well, that's a contradiction. How can the effect exist at junior level and then be gone at senior? So the authors have neglected that because I guess it doesn't fit the story they wish to tell. But I think it's really important. So why might that happen? Part of it is that in order to be successful as a third or fourth quarter junior, in other words, I'm born in November, December, I'm 10 months behind my peers, for me to be picked, I had to have been precocious or exceptional. Right? So yeah. you could just have late in the year birth who's unbelievably talented and you can survive, mm-hmm. or that person learns other skills through the pathway because they're not the fastest, they're not the biggest, they're not the tallest and the strongest and so they therefore have to adapt other skills. And by the time everyone gets to 1920, mm. the physiological cards have been played. Adolescence has happened. And so now you've got all these people who are physiologically similar. And the, and the age effect is gone. Yeah, and maybe those ones that have actually and developed later are more determined and therefore they've got an extra skill. So there's determination. They've learned how to survive. They've learned how to adapt. They've learned how to cope despite not having the... The size to rely on. And you see this in contact sports, I think, in South Africa a lot, is that the best young player is the biggest player. Yeah. And so through no, through no, through no act of training or deliberation, he's become good mm. simply because of his parents and his biological development. Yeah. And he runs over people for the first five or six years of his life. Yeah. And then he gets to 17, and all of a sudden the people he ran over two years before are as big as he is. Yeah. But he hasn't laid down any skill foundation, mm. whereas they've had to. They've yeah. learned technical abilities that he hasn't because if they didn't, they'd have been killed by him. <laughs> yeah. And so his advantage is not a competitive advantage because it gets chipped away over time as his peers age and catch up. And then he's left with nothing except his yeah. memories. Basically. So in other words, if you want a sporting protege, you don't need to start procreating in around about April because it actually doesn't make that much difference. It, at the end of the day, it all comes out in the wash. Is that what we're saying? That if, you, if you've got a talented youngster and you're successful as an adolescent, if the talent is there and the determination, the mindset is there, they should potentially develop no matter when they're born in the year. Yes, if, if, and this is the big if, if the system allows for these inefficiencies to not become too damaging. So yeah. this is an inefficiency because... Out of 100 kids, there are going to be 25 of them who are unfairly excluded, not selected at a young age. Yeah, but they, they, you don't think they will make their way back purely because they have that? It depends on the sport and it depends on the system. So if the yeah. sport makes a decision and then locks the door behind them, yeah. then absolutely, then they're gone. They're gone and then yeah. you've lost them forever. But if the sport and the parent can do this, 
can, instead of locking the door, turn it into a revolving door, then that person can come back in at any stage. So the name of the game here is can you keep as many people viable for as long as possible? Because then that, that first decision isn't as loaded. It doesn't matter as much whether you select or exclude. Yeah. As long as you give the person options to rejoin at some point in the future. So so you can design a system to actually optimize the inefficiency. But if yeah. you if you don't and you make one selection and then you never revisit it, then you are picking based on the wrong thing. Yeah. We're going to get a little bit later into the discussion around uh, we athletes, whether they've nature versus nurture, that sort of thing. But let's stick to the idea of when and where you were born. We've, we've figured out kind of when you were born. We've discussed that. Where you were born, how important is that? We've, we've uh, on, on some of the slides that on your presentation, you talk about places like New Zealand, which have got a high sort of a concentration of very good rugby players. We've, we've got a podcast coming up soon around New Zealand rugby. You Obviously, everybody knows about the East Africans and their ability to be able to run. We know about Brazilian football. And we know about North American sports and baseball and, and, and ice hockey. How relevant is it for your sporting success to be born in the right place? I would say that you can f- ask that the other way around and say that if you're born in the wrong place, you have no chance of success. So, so if I'm a Kenyan, I'm never going to be a National Hockey League player. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to emigrate. So yeah. you, there's a chance. I wouldn't say no chance, but like that's a one in a million shot. Mm. Um, so these, what I call accidents of latitude and longitude or coincidences of longitude and latitude go to, a long way to determining what sports are options for you as opposed to what is not an option. And that's culture. Yeah. So if I'm born in New Zealand, and there's a guy called Daniel Coyle who wrote a book called um, The Talent Code, mm. another book that attempted to explain these things. And his, his slant was very much culture. And I think he gave this really good analogy where he said, you're traveling along in your life along a highway and you see through the windshield. And what you see determines where you go. Yeah. And so if I'm born in New Zealand, what's in my windshield is rugby. Yeah, maybe cricket, having put us out of two World Cups now in South Africa. Uh, if I'm born in Australia, it's cricket, maybe rugby league, AFL. If I'm born in Kenya, if I'm born in St. Patrick's in Kenya, this is a village that has produced maybe more Olympic champions than most countries. Mm. My windshield is full of Olympic runners. So therefore, what is my aspiration? Olympic athlete. Yeah. In part, because all I have to do is emulate and imitate. And in part because the wealthiest people I see are athletes. So yeah. where, when I'm growing up, doctors and lawyers are aspirational careers. Mm. To that kid in St. Patrick's, steeplechase looks yeah. like an aspirational career. So, so where you are born on a ge- global geographical scale determines what's in your windshield and therefore what you can and can't do easily. But geographics is also de- a determinant of physiology to some extent as well. Well, so... You know. So this is again why Kenyans this aren't gets... going to be rugby players unless they're sevens rugby players. They are good sevens rugby players, yes, but uh, not necessarily big bulky players that we see in Union rugby, for instance. Right. So this is the most fascinating, like Japan in rugby. You yeah. know, if and that's not to say that Japan doesn't have a hundred thousand people who are six foot four or taller and who weigh a hundred kilograms and who are athletic, because they might. Yeah. But the problem is, it's one in a hundred people. Whereas in New Zealand and South Africa, it's one in 30. <laughs> so when you, when you are building your sports teams at junior, senior level, you ask, well, how likely am I to find a person with the physiological attributes necessary? Yeah. So in Kenya, 
If you want to be a good long distance runner, you need legs, lungs, and a heart, plus metabolism. And I, I think the body shape is a massive factor. So you look at these long, skinny legs and long tendons. That's what makes good long distance runners. Yep. Now, that's not to say that there aren't South Africans or Italians or Colombians who have that body shape, but much less likely yeah. than in Kenya because they live at the equator. They've developed there for thousands of years plus altitude. And so as a function of probabilities, Per 100 Kenyans, especially in that Eldoret region, 30 might be viable long-distance athletes. Yeah. Per 100 South Africans, two. So you already massively, massively got a head start if you happen to be born in Kenya. Yeah. Then you add the culture, you add the lifestyle, you add the socioeconomic incentives to make money and to create a career. You add the community, the intellectual capital that they've developed over yeah. three decades worth of doing this well. And so now the gap between South Africa and Kenya is 100 times bigger. So the interaction of genes, which gives you the hardware, which sets effectively your ceiling. So the way I would like to think of that is your genetics basically is your ticket through mm. the door. So if you don't have certain things, you're not getting into the conversation. Yeah, it's a starting point. Once you're in, then other things start to make a difference. And more Kenyans have the distance ticket more New Zealanders and South Africans have the rugby ticket, yeah. then the, the room they're in is so much bigger and the opportunities to succeed once through the door are just all over the place. It's a good example of culture, I guess, in Kenya as you think about their sort of ability, their cardiovascular ability, and you think, well, if they're great runners, why can't they be great cyclists? And we're not seeing a lot of top Kenyans coming out of cycling. There are a few, but not that many. And that's probably because the culture of cycling um, is not as strong as the culture of running. So the ability yeah. might be there, but there's not that culture to grow up on a bike and maybe not even the socioeconomic opportunity to well, ride a bike. That probably in large degree determines the cultures because yeah. the barriers to entry into that sport are so high. Mm. So yeah. when you look at the Olympics next year, look at which countries dominate the equestrian and the sailing events. Yeah, yeah those, those are not going to be third world developing countries <laughs> because rowing is the same thing. The most yeah. expensive sport. So that's that's where... I don't mean to be disparaging of those sports, but in those sports, it's not just about being talented. Yeah. It's about being lucky. It's about being, motor, being a Formula One. Well, exactly. You've got to have a lot of money exactly. just to get there. Yeah, Exactly. So that's why I always think the true global sports are running in soccer because yeah. the barriers to entry are basically zero. Yeah. And uh, so when so you to be see, the world's best soccer player, you're up against many more people. In theory, the everyone. Yeah. In theory, everyone. No, that's not true, obviously, but mm. in theory, everyone. Whereas to be the world's best sailor... I mean, one yeah. in one in one hundred thousand <laughs> people has that opportunity. So, it's uh, so opportunity is massive. So yeah. your environment constrains you in terms of what you can or can't do because it's again, it's what's in your windshield. Yeah. So we're talking about regions where people are born, and I think it's fairly sort of obvious that we look at those different regions and we know why people come from those areas are specialists in different sports, but. One of the interesting things in your slides is talking about the size of the city or the town that you come from. How does that determine how good you are at sport and, and why? Because it's not obvious this. Yeah, but it's the, it's, it's the same model as we've just been talking about for country and sport because what, what does it take to become a champion? It takes opportunity and exposure to the right environment. Yeah. And it turns out that there's some preliminary evidence. I haven't seen this produced in many places around the world that the size of the city that you grow up in in large part determines those opportunities. So 
You can imagine a kid born in Manhattan. Yeah. He's in a city of millions and millions of people. He's got a choice of basically anything he wants to do. Yeah. Facilities is not a problem. Money probably isn't a major issue either. So mm. in that respect, he's got a head start. Mm. But the problem he's got is that he's got, for every opportunity, he's got 10 distractions. Yeah. He is one person in 100,000. And so there's a real potential that unless he gets lucky at the right time with the right people, he's going to disappear into a big pond. He's a small fish in a big pond. Yeah. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the small towns, the villages, the outlying communities where maybe you don't have facilities. Now, if you don't have the facilities to play tennis, you're not becoming a tennis player. Yeah. Right? But somewhere between those two extremes is a sweet spot where you've got facilities plus opportunity plus minimal distraction plus, and this is really key, opportunities to play. And so yeah. what's been found in the four American sports, so now we're talking NHL, NBA, baseball, and PGA golf, is that the probability of becoming an elite athlete, a professional athlete, is about 15 times higher if you live in a city between 550 and 100,000 people. Which is a which is pretty small, small city. Yeah. Which is pretty small. Yeah. That would be what you would call a small town. Yes. yes. So small town kids are much more likely to emerge from the from the game of musical chairs, basically, that's what yes, it is. It's 100,000 yes. people fighting for 10 seats as professional athletes yes. because they have opportunity to play because the town isn't so small that there are no facilities. There's yeah. a coach, there's a community center, there's a swimming pool, a tennis court, whatever it is. But they also have space and safety to express that, whereas in the cities you maybe don't have those opportunities. So there's a luxury yeah. of space and time there's enough facility and there are just enough people. Plus, you're in a smallish school, so you get attention. Whereas if you're in Manhattan, you have to be exceptional to get attention. Yeah. And the end result is huge overrepresentation from smaller towns. And I know that that's true in South Africa for rugby as well. Mm. Um, you are much more likely to be spotted when you are a big fish in a smaller pond yeah. than if you are a small fish in a massive one. Sure. I mean that, that's. I mean it is a. It's a kind of a surprising conclusion because you obviously think that the bigger the the city, and obviously you will get you will still get people from big cities being represented at, at a high level of sport. But as you say, the proportion of representation is isn't as high as a smaller, medium sized towns purely because those opportunities exist in a better way. Right. So I think, and I think what's happening in the smaller towns is that you get almost an organic system develops on its own. Yeah. Um, Whereas if you're in a big, big city, unless someone goes in actively and creates what you can think of as an island, we're going to mm. insulate an area of Manhattan and we're going to be dedicated and we're going to throw resources into finding and focusing on and developing on these kids. We're kind of actually relying on luck. And in a city that big, that's, yeah, you're not getting lucky. More, more uh, often than not, you're losing people than finding them. Whereas in a small town, you just have to give opportunities and they will come up, you know, so the cream will rise to the top. Whereas mm -hmm. in the big cities, that's, yeah, the, the, the cream is drowned out by everything else. So, so far we've discovered that for your kid to be good, you need to be procreating about April, May, so your child is born in the first quarter and uh, hopefully they will develop and continue to develop as adults. Then you need to live in a small farming town where your kid pulls the tractor and also goes to <laughs> plays rugby every week. So, I mean, th these are all... These are all. I mean, I'm 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 making a mockery to some extent of it because it's not as absolute as that. But yeah. one of the key components in terms of a talent identification is the nature versus nurture argument. So 
is it talent or is it training? Now, part of that discussion, of course, is how much do you need to practice to become an elite sportsman? And is it just about practicing? And how much talent is involved in this? How do we navigate this interesting topic? Because it is one of the things most people talk about. Yeah, it's the, so this is the this is the most common thinking error that's made in this space by parents, by coaches, by even the people that design the systems, is that they they want to they they've set the question up in such a way that you end up choosing. Mm. Now that's foolish to begin with because it can be both things: choosing whether it's talent. Yeah, and why frame it as an A or B? Okay. That that alone is that's the first mistake when you've asked it. You know, you even when people say, "What is the how how much of success is talent and how much of it is training? How much of it is nature? How much of it is nurture?" Mm. That's that to me is a defeatist question because it's a unanswerable, and B is when you start trying to answer it, you end up overvaluing things that you maybe shouldn't do and so forth. So. But, My, there's a, but, but there's a baseline of both of those to some extent. You still well, have to have some talent. My argument would be that if you don't have talent, you're not getting through the door. So we yeah. spoke a few minutes back that the genetics, your DNA, your, your, your innate predisposition is the thing that gets you through the door. Yeah. So therefore, it's 100% talent. But once you're through the door, it's 100% training. Right. So therefore, it's both. It's not 51 or 50 the other. It's actually both. So, and this obviously depends on the sport because yeah. uh, there are some sports that I think, for lack of a better word, are constrained by physiology, cycling, running, swimming. Um, if you don't have the combination of VO2 max, efficiency, lactate threshold, and a few other things that contribute to those, you're not riding the Tour de France at six watts a kilo. You're not running a 27-minute 10K. It's impossible. Yeah. You can train until you are dead. You will train until you are dead, and you still won't succeed. Yeah. Whereas there are other sports, golf, tennis, uh, the skill-based sports, where I think maybe the, the, the component, the contribution of training is increased. Mm. Um, i never forget, I went to a conference in New York, and there was a mixed martial arts coach who spoke about this. He coached a number of world champions, and he said it best. He said... If I'm Usain Bolt beating you in a 100-meter race, I'm doing, it's a one-dimensional. I'm literally running in a straight line. Yeah. And what determines that is one or two things. That's oversimplified, but we'll give him a pass on it. Whereas if I'm fighting, I can beat you 10 different ways. Same in tennis. You can play that sport in a number of different ways. And the more ways there are to win, the more training might make a difference. Yeah. But that okay. doesn't... This, that doesn't Discount, and, and you'll hear David talk about this, is David's big thing on the DNA side of things, the genetic side, is that the more, more complex a task gets, the more people separate as they practice. Right. So that's why everyone listening to this can answer the question, what's four times three? Twelve, no problem. But when maths gets really complex and we get into differential calculus, not everyone can do that. Yeah. Right? So what makes the difference? We can all learn basics, but we can't all learn advanced. And, and there's an argument to be made that that's genetic uh, to some extent. Still to come. Because you're driving people to pour themselves into something that may not actually be rewarding to them. Yeah, so it's opportunities to play. That's what you have to facilitate. So, I mean, let's, let's look at a guy like Usain Bolt, for instance, as you, you've made an example of him now. He's a guy who, without a doubt, had exceptional talent. He was in a... Uh, I not say one-dimensional sport, but he is in a sport of just going as fast as possible. The differences in the margins between being great versus being good are obviously much 
tighter in a sport like 100, 100 meter running and, and and sprinting and 200 meters. So for a guy like that, is he is he the perfect mixture of unbelievable talent mixed with somebody who had incredible training ability? Because there's rumors that he didn't really train as hard as potentially other athletes. I was just going to say, Bolt, if anything, is the poster boy for genetics. Genetics, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, David, again, he spent a lot of time in Jamaica when he wrote Sports Gene, so he can tell us stories of what he observed, but they they spend half the training session clowning around. Mm. You know, that, and I, I don't mean that to be disparaging. Yeah. I think it's actually more remarkable, but that is maybe 100-meter sprinting is the rawest human physiological performance. You've either got to have leg speed or you don't. Yeah, it's leg speed and leg power. And, you know, so like these studies on biomechanics have shown that 100-meter sprinting is about how quickly can you apply force to the ground. That's yeah. that's all it is. I think what Bolt, Bolt was a 1.96-meter athlete running a 20 and a half, 200 meters at the age of 16. Yeah, he Something was, like that. I mean, extraordinary ability from a very early age. Right. And, uh, and so people... So on that, there's a guy called Rasmus Ankerson who's written a book called The Goldmine Effect, and he mm. says everyone focuses on Bolt. He wants to focus on Asafa Powell because he comes up with this term, talent that whispers. So Powell, those of you listening to this who follow the sport, has run more sub-10s than any other sprinter ever. Yeah. He never, He's never quite delivered at the major, major championships, um, but he's still one of the all-time great 100-meter guys. And he supposedly was a late developer. Now... When you look into that, you discover that Powell was maybe the fourth best sprinter in Jamaica when he was a kid. <laughs> now, that's not a late developer. That's not a guy no one knew of and then suddenly arrived and everyone said, Jeepers, where did he come from? Mm. If you're the fourth best sprinter in Jamaica at the age of 18, 19, you are world class. Yeah. So this whole way they reframe it as talented whispers for me is is not accurate because he clearly had expressed something from a young age. And, and the reason I'm telling you about Powell when you asked about Bolt is that I think what is common in these sports is there is an early expression of ability. And yeah. that to me points towards some kind of genetic difference or advantage. Whereas when you look at skill sports, I think you can see them come through a little bit later. Yeah. Again, because there's more ways to win and therefore it might take more time to learn them. Yeah. It makes logical sense. So back to the question, nature versus nurture, it's not, they're not in opposition with one another. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say that if you don't have the nature, you can't learn the skill. We, we spoke in our most recent cricket podcast about people who lack depth perception don't learn hand-eye coordination as much as people who have it. Yeah. So if you didn't have the innate ability, you can't adapt the skill. So it's yeah. the same thing. Even... VO2 max, which you as a running editor know all about. Most people will know. Yeah. It's how much oxygen you can move from the air into your muscles and so forth during exercise. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There are studies that have shown that you can take 100 people, identical training, some of them will get 30% better and some of them will stay the same. So the same nurture produces massively different outcomes. And why is that? Nature. 
Yeah. So nature and nurture interact with one another. They are they are a couple, yeah. walking together hand in hand, as opposed to one on one side and the other on the other side in opposition. So that's that's a misconception. Yeah. But I suppose we can move it move it on now in a moment. The problem with the way that it's been framed, one versus the other, is that it invites discussion around things like ten thousand hours. Yeah. And now it's all about the trainings, uh, the, the training and the practice. So practice yeah. is sufficient. That's only true if nature doesn't matter at all. If genetics and innate predisposition is zero, then training is all that matters. And that's where this debate starts to get, in my opinion, misleading and potentially harmful. Well, let's talk about the 10,000. I mean, we're going to talk about it a bit later on, but we are well, touching on it now. There's a lot of talk about that. If you do something for 10,000 hours, you become a master of it, with anything from chess to to academics, to playing the guitar, to whatever. Um, what does the science say about that? What, what proof is there around the 10,000-hour mark? None. None. <laughs> in fact, in fact, the science mostly disproves it. And even the science that proves it disproves it, which I'll explain to you in a moment. So the guy who, who comes up with this, I'm not going to label him as coming up with 10,000 hours. He's the, it's a psychologist from the States now called Anders Ericsson, and he's sort of the father of the deliberate practice model, which is a little different from 10,000 hours. But he also did the study that gave us 10,000 hours. So he goes to the School of Music in Berlin, 1993. Yeah. And he says, right, this school is going to take in all these talented young violinists who are going to study violin as a career. And I want to know what determines who's the best of them compared to average. So what he does is he asks them to think back on how much they practiced from when they started this, this instrument. So now you've got these 17, 18-year-olds thinking back 10, 12 years, yeah. saying, I practiced this many hours a week throughout my life. And then he has the school music teachers judge their playing ability at the age of 18. And he divides them into good, great, and average. So let's say great, good, and average. Yeah. Turns out that the people who are in the great group, the best young violinists, have done around 10,000 hours by the age of 18. Mm. The people who are in the good but not great, 8,000, and the lowest level is about five or 6,000. And so there's this separation of ability based on training. And yeah. he produces this paper. That's a nice round number as well, isn't it? Well, yeah, it wouldn't <laughs> be nearly as attractive if it was the 13,462-hour <laughs> rule. So, so it, was, it was great. It's easy to sell the concept. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't think he, in fairness again to him, I don't think he tried to sell that concept. Yeah. Uh, other people capitalized on it and packaged it and marketed it this way. So anyway, so he's got this finding and, he's, and his conclusion is that your, your ability to reach elite performance levels, and this is a quote, is primarily constrained by your engagement in deliberate practice and the quality of training resources. So in other words, this is a model where practice is sufficient. If you practice, you become great. The problem with this paper, and I looked at it, and we ended up writing a, not a counter to that, but a, a paper in which we criticized that, was that he doesn't show any measures of range or variance. Now, for a scientist, as a statistical measure, this is really important because mm -hmm. if you've got one guy in that elite violin group, the great violinist, who's done 3,000 hours, he disproves the model. Similarly, if you've got a guy who's only average and he's done 10,000 hours, he disproves the model, right? Because the former is saying that you can become great without practice, so therefore it's not necessary. And the latter is saying that you can do the practice but not become great, therefore it's not sufficient. 
And so in that study, by not showing us those ranges, he doesn't allow us to evaluate that possibility. Subsequently, someone does a study of chess players. Now chess, you, you earn points to become a master, an international master, and a grandmaster. And what these researchers from Argentina do is they look and say, how many hours did it take these players to become master and international master? Sure enough, 11,000 hours on average to become an international master chess player. But you see, they did show us variance. And so now you look at that study and they show us something called standard deviation, you know, the old plus minus. So it turns out to become a master takes 11,000 plus or minus five and a half thousand hours. Now that's right. massive. That's a massive range. Yeah. And so therefore you know, and they, and they show this, in that group of masters, some of them have done it in 10,000 hours, in 3,000 hours. Yeah. There was so one fast responders. Exactly. Yeah. And there's one guy there who's done 25,000 hours and he's still not a master. So what's he? He's a non-responder to training. Mm. He's practiced for 25,000 hours and he's not there yet. Now, if I'm a parent or a coach or the high performance director of an Olympic sport in a country around the world, I don't want that non-responder in my system for 20 years because he's a drain on resources. Yeah. I don't want my child to be focused on chess for 10 years or baseball or basketball or tennis if he's not actually predisposed to being good at it. Yeah. Because he could have done something else. Yeah. Right? So from a talent development point of view, from a coaching point of view, from a parental point of view, from a human perspective, this idea that you must accumulate training is bad. Because yeah. if you're accumulating it in the wrong thing, you're wasting time. You're effectively wasting your life. Yeah. And so that's where this messaging becomes actually quite harmful because you're driving people to pour themselves into something that may not actually be rewarding to them. So how do you judge whether somebody has potential if, if we haven't got this beautiful little bit of measure of 10,000 hours? Because we're now saying that's not the case. So how do, how do we decide if little Johnny is going to be a good enough athlete or not? So for everyone in the system, parent, athlete, coach, high performance manager, CEO, same thing. You give as many people as many possibilities to sample sports as you can, yeah. and then you delay the selection until as late as you can. So this is the diversification sampling model. Yeah. So in other words, you don't put someone on a pathway to 10,000 hours. Because the, the key point in all of this is that these are zero-sum decisions. Yeah. If I'm going to do 10,000 hours in, let's say, uh, tennis, I can't do anything else. Yeah, Because if I start at the age of, let's say I want to be 22 elite tennis player, mm. 10,000 hours, two hours a day means I'm going to accumulate 800 hours a year, let's say, okay? That's 12 years worth of my life that I have to do two hours a day of tennis. Can I do anything else? No. 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 And so if you put someone on a pathway to, to having to hit 10,000 hours, you are effectively choosing one thing for them. Yeah. And what you should be doing, so this is the answer to your question, is give people opportunities to do as many different things as possible for as long as possible. And you wait until adolescence before you make that commitment. Why? Because adolescence is the watershed at which you finally see what this person's physical capabilities are going to be. So you don't know if that person's going to be six foot three or five foot ten. And that could be a that could be the decisive factor yeah. as to whether he becomes a tennis player or not. But if he's 5'10", maybe there's something else he might have done. Yeah. So you, you wait as long as possible. 
you sample as much as possible and then you pick as late as possible. That's quite a lot of responsibility for parents, but I guess that is, I mean, we, we all, to some extent, always look at the case of people like Tiger Woods, who we know was hitting a golf ball off the tee at the age of two or three or whatever it was. Mm. And we look at those cases and say, well, unless Johnny is hitting, is a scratch handicap golfer at the age of 13, or Sally is running sub 12 over the 100 meters at the age of 14, they've got no chance of being a professional sportsman. Yeah. Is that not true then? That's not true at all so early specialization is not true of top sportsmen generally so early specialization for two reasons should be avoided number one is it's not necessary right okay. so therefore you don't need it and number two is it's harmful so there are now easily dozens of papers that show that children who specialize early are less likely to be active later mm -hmm. in other words you're more likely to quit the sport if you specialize early you're more likely to be injured you're more likely to suffer burnout and resentment towards that sport, and you're less likely to succeed. Yeah. So there is no, there's almost no redeeming feature from for early specialization. The only reason we do it is because we've created a culture that values the head start too much. So yeah. we we think like you've just framed it is if you can't do certain things by the age of eight or nine, then your peers who can are two years ahead of you, and you'll never catch up. Well, that's because, that, the, the, because we know the high-profile cases like the Tiger Woodses. So we are swayed by what, yeah. what David has called, and I think it's the best term, these unicorns. Yeah. I remember when I was 15 opening Sports Illustrated and there were these two young tennis players with their father, Richard Williams, Venus, Serena. Yeah. And Sports Illustrated, they were 10, 11 at the time. They were making these great predictions. The problem is no one follows up on the wrong prediction. <laughs> so how many times do you think journalists have predicted future success for a young athlete and been incorrect. Hundreds. But they'll yeah. never tell you. But they'll be quick to tell you that Venus and Serena, Tiger, Andre Agassi, were precocious youngsters who were earmarked for success by yeah. their parents and by their communities. So we have, we have this great illustration of survivorship bias. Yeah. So we are, we, are then, we are then brainwashed into believing that that is typical when in actual fact it is exceptional. So... Again, you've seen that video of Tiger Woods on a TV show when he's about three years old and the golf club's nearly bigger than he is. Yeah, hitting and, the perfect drive. And he, yeah, and then he's on Bob Hope and he, and he yeah. puts on Bob Hope's studio and all the crowd goes nuts for him. Yeah. Those things have become folklore. Yeah. And, they've, and they've convinced us that Tiger is the model that needs to be followed. But what I'd say is that for every successful Tiger Woods, there are 99 five-year-olds who could play golf their fathers were helping them. And it, just on this, David's opening chapter in range is called the Tiger versus Roger problem. And he, well, and give he us the Roger, it's the Roger Federer. So Roger Federer is yeah. the early diversification poster boy. This is a guy who played soccer. He played uh, tennis, obviously, um, but he only chose to specialize in tennis much later. His later parents, being what? Late teens? Yeah, after adolescence, so 16, 17. Right. And his parents, David makes the point in the book, his parents were very anti him becoming obsessive about tennis yeah. they wanted him to do as much as possible um they didn't want him to focus on being the world number one when he was 13 14 years old he yeah. was he was more about play and enjoyment and diversify and have a balance to himself that the tiger woods didn't necessarily have not sure. not through his father's actions by the way so the way david tells it is the tiger was actually the one who was pushy 
um, his father helped him, obviously, but it wasn't like his father was dragging him away from his friends to go and play yeah. golf. He was self-motivated. He was self-motivated. So, but, but, but back to the point is that we then, we then see Tiger, Venus, Serena as the model that needs to be emulated. But in actual fact, there are n- more. 999 out of 1,000 are now driving trucks, working in banks, owning small businesses, coaching at country clubs. They're doing anything other than being sports champions. So, but the, but the we, question is not necessarily those who have failed who started early, those who didn't start early, who didn't specialize early, how many of those have been successful? So what you're saying is if you look at the top tier of, of world sports mm. across all sports, generally people who have specialized later are more successful yes. in the long term. Right. So great study out of Scandinavia a few years back where they looked at what are called the CGS sports, centimeter, grams, seconds. So these are sports where that performance is measurable. So centimeters is long jump, grams is weightlifting, seconds is 100 meter running, swimming, cycling. And what they found was if you divide the elite athletes into the best of the best, so this is Olympic top 10 European medalists and a group that you'd call near elite, so that's professional athletes but not Olympic medalist caliber, Yeah. What happens is your elites delay specialization, they delay high training volumes, and they only do the big volumes after adolescence, where your near elites have this different trajectory. Their their training volumes take off very quickly, very early. So they train a lot when they're young. And once they get to adolescence, it flattens off. So you've got these two curves. And the curve you want to be on, based on probabilities, is the one that delays specialization the one that delays high training volumes because you are more likely a you're more likely to stick with it you're Mm. less likely to quit you're less likely to be injured and you're probably more likely to figure out which sport suits you best yeah again the watershed comes at adolescence because unless you don't believe that your physiology and your body type is a major predictive performance you you wouldn't worry about it but it is i mean There are ceilings that exist if you don't have certain attributes and you don't know whether that person has those attributes until after adolescence. So therefore you must wait as long as you possibly can before you make that commitment. Yeah, it's very interesting because it really does fly in the face of a lot of this public sentiment around these sort of things. So that's, it is important. Yeah. But that's because society... Let your kids enjoy the sport. I mean, essentially what, what it's saying is enjoy, let your kids enjoy it. And when they choose to specialize and almost self-motivated to do that, let them do it. And I think the reason why I'm saying that is we see many examples, particularly, and I talk specifically about South African sports to some extent, you see parents and fathers on the sidelines of rugby matches screaming at their youngsters to get the ball or tackle or do whatever it is. I've seen examples of parents who are looking after young cyclists who push their youngster to such an extent at the age of 13, 14, getting them coaches. And by the time they get to the early 20s, they've given up. And one of my son's friends is an example of that. Um, so it, it, it shows you that you know, enjoyment is also part of that development to some extent, way beyond just the idea of specialization. Yeah, so it's opportunities to play. Yeah. That's what you have to facilitate. Yeah. Um, the problem is that culturally sport reflects a broader society and mm. even there we've created this race to the bottom. You know, at universities and schools now, you have school vacations. These days they don't even take breaks, some of the kids, because they have to do extra maths. Yeah. Why? Because I just have to get a little bit better. Why? Because that way when I get to university, I'm ahead of my peers. Why is that? Well, that way I can get better scholarships. 
I can get better job offers when I finish my engineering degree. Yeah. So we've we've really created this race to the bottom. I'll give you an example in in South Africa of how this plays out. Is if you want to be a professional rugby player in this country, yeah. you have to get a pro contract as you leave school. Now, to get a professional contract as you leave school, you have to be noticed at the age of 16, 17. But to be noticed at the age of 16, 17, you have to be in a good school at the age of 13, 14. But to be noticed at a good school at the age of 13, 14, you have to be pretty good at the age of 11 or 12. And so effectively, every single step you take required that you be good at the step before. And so that's a race to the bottom. Which takes us back to the idea that somebody who's born at a certain time might be yeah. more developed yeah and it puts it puts this pressure on the parent to say i must do everything it takes to make sure that my son is spotted as early as possible so how do i get him into the shop window in a prominent location yeah. and that means we have to train him as if he was 18 when he's 10 yeah we have to teach him what a 19 year old should be learning when he's 11 we have to get him in the gym and we have to make sure that he's as big or bigger than his peers at the age of 12. So it creates this really toxic environment where everything you're doing, you're doing 10 years too soon because it's the only way you think. And, and these parents are well-intentioned. They genuinely want what's best for their kids. Yeah. But they are, in a sense, victims of a society and a, and a, a culture that is driving them to do exactly the wrong thing. Now... I don't have this position. It's an enviable situation to be in for for parents, an unenviable situation, sorry, Um, because there's so much inertia in the system that it's very difficult to bypass it. You can't. If you really want your son to play rugby, you can't, not you can't, but you're much less likely to succeed unless you meet certain milestones along the way. And the problem is those milestones are actually harmful. And those milestones are dictated to by a school. I mean, if you're not performing yeah. at a school, you're not unlikely to be performing at, at varsity or post-school level. Right. I mean, so is, there there, is, a- is there, I mean, if you have to do a blueprint um, around changing that, what is the blueprint? How do we change that if you look globally? Should people be looking at talent identification in a different way? In other words, looking at it from 18 or 16 onwards rather than from 12 or 13? Yeah, if I was king for a day or five years because I reckon you need well 10 uh, years one term at least yeah a 10 year <laughs> life term um I would do away with selection before 16 into representative teams you obviously can't not select at all because then it just creates a free-for-all of 100 kids chasing a ball around so you have to pick teams right in order to play structure but I would delay the selection on merit until 16 I would make those picks either random or designed to ensure equality so in other words don't let the 60 kilogram 10 year old play against the 40s because he's four years ahead of them biologically right Right. then the other thing i would do is i would so in other words you'd have a a mix of teams based on the enjoyment of sports so johnny would play with clive and they would just have a good time and throw the ball around and then when they get to a later age you can say right this so that's person. up to that's probably up to 13, 14, 15. Then right. you start specializing by position because many sports have specialist positions and you you will obviously you can't then have everyone the same. You're just going to create an army of clones all of whom are average, none of them who's good. And that's yeah. not your point, your purpose either. But by 16 you start selecting into merit teams. By 13, 14, what I would say needs to happen is that the best coach needs to coach the B and the C and the D team. 
So you want to flip that entire system on its head because at the moment what happens is you pick the 13-year-old A team, B team, C team, and that pick effectively condemns 75% of your youngsters to yes. never having a chance. Because, because the D coach doesn't care. Yeah, he's just, <laughs> he's just there to help facilitate and everyone must have a good time. Yeah. Now, we know, and this will be the case in all sports, that at least 75% of your best 18-year-olds are not your best 13-year-olds. So in other words, per 118-year-olds, only right. 25 are in the system at 13. Okay. 75 disappear and are replaced by another 75 who come from somewhere else. Right. right? So where do they come from? They come from the B team, the C team, the D team. So it makes sense to me that if you want to get the best 18-year-old, you should have good coaches at the lower levels working with your theoretically weaker players. So you should be almost lifting from the bottom. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because yeah. at the moment what we do is we, we skim off the top and then we hope that they survive and only one in four does. And, so that's, and that's the stat in South African rugby. We have under 13 teams selected and we know that out of every 100 under 13s, only 25 are still there at 75, uh, at 18. So I'm going to put you on the spot. So do, you know, do you know of any structures that, that do challenge this? I mean, globally, I think everybody's pretty much the same. It's all of, it's Norway. All the same. Norway does it. And I remember discovering that um, at the time of the last Olympic Games, Winter Olympics, because they topped the medal table. Yeah. Small country. Admittedly, it's Winter Olympics, so it's it's the country that, <laughs> let's be honest, that, talk about being in the windshield. You look out your windshield and there's snow on the on the ground. Um, <laughs> so it does, snow. it does help <laughs> to have that. And Winter Olympics are niche sports in many instances. Right, yeah. But a number of articles were written at the time talking about how they've got this culture of sport where they, it's, it's almost... The, the loaded word here, but it's almost like socialism where everyone has to have equal opportunities for as long as possible. And we don't have a system of hierarchies and aggressive capitalism. That's what aggressive capitalism applied to sport is what drives most sports systems because it's earn your way to the top yeah. and you have to fight. And that means you stand on other people on your way up. It doesn't matter. Whereas it seemed to me that the Scandinavian countries have a culture where Actually, we don't want you to stand out. We want you to stay part of the community for as long as possible. And what that's done is it's allowed, it's allowed them to. So they, they encourage mass participation more than any other country. They encourage um, diversification. They encourage play and non-competitive sport. And mm -hmm. the result is that when they get to 1920, they have got 100 athletes instead of five who they can then turn into Olympic champions. I mean, it's a big lesson, isn't it? I mean, it really is a big lesson to world federations of every sport around the world to actually take cognizance of this because all the research, all the science suggests that that is actually the right, right strategy. And this is, so when I when I try and explain this around the world to these, these sports organizations and so on, that's the theory. Yeah. So let me give you this analogy. Imagine I did a life's worth of research into coffee. Right, this is going off on a tangent. I think I might have done and, that myself. And I <laughs> and I came along and I said that there is now good scientific evidence that drinking coffee before ten o'clock in the morning takes years off your life, is extremely dangerous and should be avoided at all costs. You're a coffee shop owner, and so is your next door neighbour. Mm -hmm. Let's say you valued my scientific opinion and you shut your coffee shop down and you decided you're only going to open at eleven. You're going to go out of business. Yeah. Because he's going to ignore me, and all those consumers are going to come to him. And you, having followed science and having followed evidence, are actually going to cut your own feet off. Yes. 
Now, the problem with sport is it's the same thing, is I can stand there and tell these sports that they should delay specialization, that they should not drive kids to do the training, that they should not select until after adolescence. The sport who listens to me is going to lose because the problem is that they're all competing for this. They're all competing for the same resource. So now imagine two soccer teams. Why are they going to lose? Will, will, it, not, will it not self-correct? It, it might. might take a few years, but it will self-correct and there needs to be some investment in the it long might, term. But, there's a, but unfortunately, there's a, there's a perverse. So you, you could listen to me, but you have to be clever about it. So let's say I'm a soccer team, professional football team in England, and I'm in London. And there's another team in London, and we are both vying for the same pool of players. If, if soccer team A decides that they're not going to select until 16, soccer team B will say, thanks a lot, we'll take them. Yeah. And by the age of 16, they will have no one potentially left, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so you have to be quite careful so about it. Everybody has to buy in, essentially. That's the problem. It's yeah. all or nothing, right? Yeah. And if, and if you don't all buy in, then the problem is that you might be the one person who loses out. Yeah. So it's game theory. It's like the prisoner's dilemma. You know, what's the other guy going to do? Because if he doesn't play by the the new rules, the scientifically credible ones, could he could he actually be the the, the winner? And I'm going to end up looking like the fool. Um, so, so to some extent, professional sport is the is because it's a professional era, particularly in sports like soccer. That's more likely to happen than in a maybe a less a more amateur sport yes. where the decision to buy a player or invest in a player is not as critical. Exactly. So yeah. smaller sports. Uh, so, so for instance, in South Africa, again, we've got a few big sports that have money and can buy players and invest in them from a young age. All the others are kind of hoping to keep them because of passion, because of love of the sport, Olympic medals, whatever it is. If those smaller sports complied and delayed the selection, they wouldn't have anyone to go with. Yeah. So everyone's unfortunately playing by the rules dictated to them. And if one person changes the rules and the others don't, that one person looks like a fool. So, so what, the, what the message should be, I think, is you have to figure out how the inefficiencies of one can be capitalized on by the other. Because I just think there's too much inertia to change it. So what I mean by that is that when you, when you have 113-year-olds being selected to play rugby or basketball, ice, whatever it is. Those kids have obviously shown some predisposition to sport. They're yeah. good athletes at yeah. 13. 75 of those 100 are going to be gone by the age of 18. They haven't become bad athletes. Just because of attrition. Just because of attrition. Yeah. Because they were so, – so I spoke earlier about the inclusion error. Mm. This is the opposite. This is the – sorry, the, I spoke earlier about the exclusion error where you yeah. don't pick the right people. This is the inclusion error where you pick the wrong people. And those two things are linked because it's a zero-sum decision, right? I pick Johnny, I can't pick Paul. So I lose 75 of my initial 100. But those 75 haven't suddenly become bad athletes. Yeah. Maybe some of them have. But a lot of them are still good athletes. They become what I call ghosts in the system. And what I would then challenge sports to do is to figure out how can we turn those ghosts, how can we bring those ghosts back to life? Yeah. Not necessarily in the same sport, but in another one. So maybe maybe the inefficiencies created by ice hockey could become Canada's rugby players. Yeah. Maybe the inefficiencies created by South African rugby could become Olympic rowers because they have the same physical attributes. Yeah. Maybe the inefficiencies created by English soccer teams can become English hockey's game or yeah. tennis's game, whatever it is. Because athleticism, there's so much overlap in athleticism between sports that you can probably switch from one to another. 
And so there's an Australian study on Olympic sports that showed that Olympic athletes do, 75% of Olympic athletes do three or more sports before they pick, and then they become elite within three to four years. Okay. So you can turn a diverse athlete into a specialist within four years, 3,000 hours, as long as he was diverse when he was younger. And that's the person that should be the priority of the system. So parents who are listening to you want to you want to get your son or daughter to be that person. Yeah. Four sports for as long as possible, three or four sports for as long as possible, and then you pick and three years later they can be at the Olympic Games. Sure. That's I mean that's quite that's quite solid actionable advice really, isn't it? In theory, again, in, in theory. In, in, and in <laughs> science it's quite rare for you to say that. <laughs> yeah, in theory. And but then what happens is uh, and this is this, this is me undermining my simple solution. <laughs> Don't ruin it. Now. And then and then Mrs. Jones sends her daughter off to the school, and the school says you play one sport. Yeah. And the daughter says, "But like I've been told, I heard this podcast, and they yeah. said that I got to play three until I'm 18." Yeah, yeah. And the school says you will play water polo in summer and hockey in winter. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And so now Mrs. Jones has a dilemma because what does she do? <laughs> So, yeah. so that's where it gets tricky for parents. And I'm very sympathetic because the system is geared with yeah. these perverse incentives. Well, hopefully it can change. Let's I talk so. very briefly about um, things like adversity versus things like grit. There's all these talk about it when you, you know, you have to have some sort of adversity in your early life to be successful in any sphere, whether it's sport or life or generally. And then also the idea of grit. Grit's quite a topical thing at the moment. But yeah. let's start with adversity. Where, where, in your presentation, you talk a little bit about adversity. What impact do you think it has on successful top sportsmen? In other words, when they have some sort of early trauma in life, does it push them to be a better sportsman, give them more determination, or is having an easy life less of a chance of being a successful sportsman? Yeah, so the adversity thing reflects a little bit of a paradigm shift in how these talent pathways are run. So a talent pathway is the thing that takes a 10-year-old or a 14-year-old and says, right, for the next 10 years, this is the journey you will follow. This is the road that you will travel. And it used to be thought, I think, that the, the point was that you should make it as smooth as possible. In other words, you want to get the guy from start point to Olympic podium and manage all the obstacles in the way to try and take them out the way. And then what was discovered is actually that the, the path is never as easy as that. I mean, the plan is all good and well, but it never works out the way you intended it. And they discovered that adversity and trauma seems to predict who succeeds. So yeah. in the Great Britain Olympic system, they found that the athletes who win the medals have more often than not had some kind of major issue in their lives, be it the divorce or death of a parent, uh, death or injury to a sibling, maybe an, a severe injury to themselves, life-threatening illness, something like that, yeah. upheaval. And so they reckon now that this adversity and what they call the rocky road to the top, is actually the predictor of success. So they try now to design a pathway that throws obstacles in the person's way. Because if you can overcome them, then it shows that you've got the resilience to take the next step and the next one and the next one. But so, don't, I mean, don't we all have some story when we're young? Well, I mean, aren't we all have some sort of adversity we have to deal with? So it? this is where I'm skeptical again. In the same way that Tiger Woods and Serena Williams are survivors, my concern is that you're measuring your Olympic medalists and you're relating their adversity or trauma to their medal-winning ability, but you're not measuring the 10,000 kids whose parents got divorced or death or siblings or something who didn't win medals. Yeah. So I don't 
So I'm not I'm not sold on this idea, by the way. I, I, it's what's out there. But there's but obviously some research again, supporting it. Yes, but again, it's majorly yeah. biased research because yeah. of the survivorship bias. Yeah. Again, you it's easy to tell the story of Tiger Woods. It's very difficult to tell the story of the 99 could have been Tiger Woods's because no one knows they're there. Yeah. It's a known unknown. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And it's the same with this adversity. They, they were known because you, you identified them through the middle yes. and then you work backwards. Yes. Where what you should be doing is identifying through the adversity and working forwards. And no one's doing that. So I think the research isn't the best quality. But it, it, again, it, it logically makes sense that you want your athletes to have resilience. Yes. We spoke to Gary Kirsten and he told us the story of sport will hurt you. Not physically always, sometimes. But it will. It'll bring you back down to earth. You will yeah. fail. And he spoke about coaching being managing failure. Yeah. And that's the reality. No one wins all the time. So if you don't if you don't put resilience in young people, then the moment the going gets tough, they'll be gone. As opposed to rising to that challenge and growing from the adversity. So it makes logical sense that you want to do this. It's just that the research probably doesn't support it at this yeah. stage there's a great um i think part of your presentation you do around this where you show what most people think about success is either success or failure what people know who are successful is that actually they go through a series of failures before they mm. get to success yeah so that's resilience actually in a, in, a, exactly. in a short way exactly so it's a reflection of reality yeah. the path to success the path to the top of the olympic podium is not an easy one yeah so therefore and the there will pathway be lots of failure. Yeah. should not be designed to make it easy for you so and again, this is, I think, common. No matter where you are in the world listening to this, you will know stories of precocious young superstars who just disappeared the moment the step up got too difficult. Yeah. Now, why is the that? The moment they first failed. Again, it's complex. But the, mm. the, what I think it boils down to is that they weren't equipped with the psychological, emotional, mental, or physical skills to deal with that first failure. And they, they went from schoolboy to adult, and suddenly things were tough and they didn't yeah. know how to adapt. So, so, so that's why it makes sense for a system and a parent to, to make things difficult for their kids. Mm. It's, again, parents are well-intentioned when they buy you the best equipment and they take you to practice and they help you get everything you need in theory to succeed. But sometimes making it uncomfortable might be what the kid actually needs more. Yeah, and I think coaches and the good coaches and parents probably recognize that, and they, and they create what I've called survivable failure. Yeah, you know, you don't want to blow the guy up <laughs> to the extent that he yeah. quits at sixteen. You want him to fail, but have an opportunity, one avenue to learn from and succeed in that. In in that, and that's where, that's where then things like growth mindset and grit came in. So it's interesting to look at this because, the first paradigm was ten thousand hours. You know, and Gladwell yeah. popularized it, Syed destroyed it um, by overplaying it and cherry picking it. Sports federations jumped on it. I remember a, a rugby coach in America saying that we can't get footballers, American footballers, into rugby because they won't get their 10,000 hours. And you're like, you literally have taken it. Yeah. Taken it to the next level. I mean, of that's just absurdity. ridiculous. Yeah. Like, what yeah. are you shooting? You're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. yeah. But then what happened was 10,000 hours once disproven evolved and it changed into growth mindset and into grit concepts where we need people who are tough and perseverant and who'll stick it out. Again, makes sense, but I don't think it's necessarily the best way to do it because like take grit for instance. Grit is basically a measure of how well you stick to something you start. 
Yeah. So if you start something and then you stop, you lack it. If you start something but you stick with it, even though it's uncomfortable, you have it. Right. And there's some research showing that grit is the predictor of performance at MIT, you know, in, in Boston where they produce all the rocket scientists. Yeah. The problem with grit is Is, that, is grit a scientific term? No, it's <laughs> well, it's a social science term now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and a woman called Angela Duckworth is really the, the main driver of this. So she goes out to the research. They go to MIT and they ask, what determines your success in this unbelievably competitive education program? Turns out grit determines it more strongly or predicts it more strongly than your maths and your science score. And so that popularizes the notion of grit. The problem is, from a scientific design study, is that by the time you go to MIT, you already have basically perfect math scores and science scores. Yeah. So everyone she's comparing is the same. They're already exceptional. So now this is like going to the NBA and trying to ask whether height matters to basketball by only studying seven-foot-tall people. You're yeah. going to find no performance benefit of height, and you're going to conclude that height doesn't matter. It must be something else, and, yeah. you, and you'd be wrong. Yeah. And that's the problem with grit is that she's – She's studying such a narrow range of people that the thing that she's then discounting for is already present in all of them. So it's, yeah. a, it's in my opinion, not the best thinking. Mm. Grit gets you to a certain place, but not necessarily to the next level because a lot of people have it. Right, so there's a ceiling. Yeah. So yeah. grit can get you from A to B to C, but maybe not to D. Yeah. From the first floor to the third floor, but the fourth floor you needed innate yeah. ability or something else. Yeah. Or you could look at it the other way and say that, all things being equal, grit will make the difference between you and your competitor. So yeah. there's no doubt that it's a helpful attribute to have. Yeah. But the problem is that when you, again, it's the same as 10,000 hours, you take this theoretically good concept and you apply it literally, what you end up doing is blaming people for their own failures. Yeah. Because now I'm telling you, Mike, the only reason you didn't succeed is because you weren't gritty enough. If mm. only you'd been tougher. <laughs> if only you'd been a little bit more perseverant. And what that's doing to you is it's guilting you yeah. and it's almost constraining you to just stick with it a little longer. And if there's one thing we've discovered in this discussion over the last hour is that sometimes sticking with it isn't good. It's like if you're digging a hole, at what point do you stop? Yeah. You don't, because you're gritty, dig a deeper and deeper hole for yourself. So if you are playing a sport that you don't really enjoy yeah. and you seem to have reached a ceiling, maybe it's time to look at a different sport. Yeah. Maybe it's time to look at a different career. Maybe it's time to actually step off that train and find a new journey. Yeah. But grit is telling you, no, just go a little longer, a little longer. So I think we shouldn't be asking people to be gritty. I think we should be asking people to find what they're passionate about, mm. what they're predisposed to succeed at, and therefore what they are best at. And that's not coming from grit. That's coming from exploration. So I reckon... The most successful people in the world are the ones who would come out as having the least grit because they're the ones who explore. Inventors. I mean, if, if, if Elon Musk was gritty, he would have done one thing in his life really yeah. well, but he wouldn't have done five things. If yeah. Leonardo da Vinci was gritty, he'd have been a painter and nothing else. Right? But, <laughs> but, so, so I think we should be matching people to their passions, not making them gritty, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So final words, I mean, basically what we're saying is little Johnny is showing promise as a sportsman. Make sure he enjoys it. Help him diversify as much as possible. Don't make him specialize too early in life. And I, one of the things I always, when people ask me what best sort of development is for athletes, I think one of the most 
important things is to create heroes within communities. So we looked at the example of, we talked about Usain Bolt a bit earlier. The best way to create great sportsmen is to create great sportsmen. In other words, people follow them, they they do follow them by example, that sort of thing. But it's it's this focus on early development, trying to get people to be brilliant sportsmen, they are 13, 14, which actually is in many ways counterproductive to the success of the sportsman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's about... I think the thing that you can design is what that person sees in their windshield. And I've used that analogy a lot because I think it's a good one. So as a parent, as a coach, as a school teacher, whatever it is, I mean, we've spoken sport. These these principles are as applicable to academic and artistic development as they are to sport, by the way. I think you should just be trying to encourage people to follow what they are passionate about as often as possible. So when a child at the age of 10 or 11 shows a real passion, facilitate that. Yeah. If that passion changes at 14, facilitate that. You haven't wasted three years. He's yeah. learned. Let's say that passion at 11 is, is the violin. It's going to be painful for you as your kid <laughs> learns the violin. But he's laying down skills and lessons that will help him when he changes at 14 because he's learning discipline, he's learning patience, yeah. he's learning persistence, he's learning fine motor control. And then when he goes to 14 and he decides actually he wants to do something else, whether it's a different instrument or a different activity altogether, those lessons aren't gone. Yeah. So you haven't done any harm. You've just allowed him to develop the way his natural trajectory was. And stop comparing yourself to other people. This head start thing is not necessary. You don't have to race everyone to the bottom. So just facilitate passion and get good people in the windshield and let things evolve the way they wish are meant to evolve. And then when he gets to 17, then you lean on him and say, let's make a call here. What's it going to be? Professor Rostaker, I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.